Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Man, we started a sermon series last week called Therapy for My Soul, and so far it's gone really well, uh, gone better than I expected. Um, but I don't just want this to be an occasion for us to preach. Um, and be amused by, by what God's Word says. Um, I actually want to put um, some meat on the bones of this, and what I mean by that is, in a practical way, I really want people to seek help. I want people to, to seek, seek counseling and seek therapy. Now, now, now what, I, what I want you to know is, we don't think therapy is the end-all, be-all, but we do think it helps us, all right? And so, one of the practical things that we have a person who's um, in our church, um, Angie, and Angie pre- prepared a list, Angie's list, Angie prepared a list, it's weird, um, in the lobby of licensed professional therapists and counselors. And so after, as a result of last week's message, this week's message, or next week's message, if you feel compelled to seek therapy or seek counseling, um, there will be a list of counselors, female and male counselors, in the lobby. All right. I don't know any of those people, but but they are recommended. And whatever happens in the counseling office is between you and that person. But I do recommend it because if we're being honest, there's no way that you can't have some sort of issues if you live in a fallen world. Right. None of us are born in perfect parents and none of us are born in perfect families. And so because of because of the fall, we we are we are victim of it. And so we deal with things that happen in our lives. And so God has given us a gift, the gift of counseling and therapy to help us to grow um, in our, to grow in our lives and grow in our relationship with Him. Amen? All right, with that being said, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel is found in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 22. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. I want to say this, that uh, this, is, um, this is not for the faint of heart. Um, this is, I want you to keep in mind as we read and we study this, that this is not just some story in some fictional book. This is, this is a real story that happened in real time to real people. I want you to keep that perspective. This is not a cute Bible story. This is not some movie. This is This is reality. Um, but it's been written for our instruction. And so pray for me as we preach through this because this is a very heavy, heavy topic. And so um, continuing on our, ser- our sermon series, Therapy for My Soul, today we're going to talk about generational trauma, about trauma. And so I'm going to pick it up, Second Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. It says this, Some time passed. David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And David's son, Amnon, was infatuated with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister, Tamar, because she was a virgin. 
but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother, Shemiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, dude, what's wrong with you? Why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? That doesn't make sense to me. Won't won't you tell tell me, what's, what's going on, man? And Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, here's what you should do, man. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be sick. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare a meal in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. So Amnon followed through with the plan, and Amnon laid down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, Dad, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so I can eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Then Tamar went to his house while Amnon was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence, and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, everyone, everyone out, everyone leave me, everyone get out of the house. And everyone left him. And he says to his sister Tamar, hey, bring the meal to the bedroom so I can eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. And when she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come, Sleep with me, my sister. And in desperation, she cries out, don't, my brother. She cried, don't, don't, please don't do this. Don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Please don't stop, stop this outrage. Where where could I go with my humiliation if you do this to me? And, And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Please, please just speak to the king, our father, for he won't keep me from you. But he refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced his own sister by raping her. So Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love that he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried. Sending me away is worse than, great, worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. But he still refused to listen to her. Instead, he called to the servant who waited for him and said, get, get this, get, get this, this thing away from me. Threw her out and bolt the door behind her. Amnon's servant threw her out and bolted the door behind her. Now Tamar was wearing a long sleeve robe because this is what the king's virgin daughters wore. But Tamar, life turned upside down, put ashes on her head, tore the long sleeve robe she was wearing her hand on her head and went away crying. Her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon been with you? Here's what you're going to do. I know you just got raped, but be quiet. Let's not tell anybody. Remember, 
That's your brother. So we got to keep this a family secret. Don't, don't, don't take it to heart. You know how Amnon is. Don't take it to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. When King David heard about all these things, he was furious. But Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you today for who you are, Lord. We thank you that there is no part of life that you don't address. Lord, I pray today, God, for your grace and for your mercy to help us as we study your word. God, I pray that the walls, the walls of protection and the walls of secrecy will come down today. I pray, Father, that that if this touches someone in a real way, I pray today would be a day not of disgrace, but a day of healing. Lord, you can do what I can't do through preaching. You are, are the only one who could step into a situation like this and bring some sort of healing. And so today, God, we call on your power. We call on the Holy Spirit to help us today. God, we pray today, Father, that today will begin the journey of healing for someone in the room today, whether it be a young man or young woman. We, we pray today, God, that, that you would be a balm for us, that you would be a healing balm, God. And so, Father, I pray that you would supernaturally work through all of our hearts and minds, that you would uproot every, every sin, every wickedness, every evil in our own hearts, God. I pray today, Father, that you would make us more like you, Father. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would help us as we receive and that you would help us as we preach together, we, as we respond together. I pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be made known today, that we would find hope and salvation in him. And so, Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for this, for your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series, Therapy for My Soul, my sermon title today is Generational Trauma, Generational Trauma. Oftentimes when we think about trauma or about our own trauma, We tend to think about it on an isolated, personal basis. But I want to tell you today that we read this story, we find out one thing that is surely true, is that trauma does not happen in a vacuum. Individual trauma, more times than not, occurs in the context of community. The the events that, that, that bring trauma to our lives, or the trauma that we've had to deal with, oftentimes passes through the ears or through the hands of several people. If there is family trauma, if we have family trauma, or if there's stuff going on in the family, we all often know about it, but it's something that we don't talk about. And so we, we, we call those skeletons in the closet. Those are, are family secrets, things that we just refuse to talk about and deal with because we want to protect each other. And so here's what I want to say, that, that we all have generational trauma that we have to deal with. 
we all have generational issues and generational burdens that we carry. Now, I don't want you to go ahead and confuse generational trauma with generational curses. And so oftentimes, even Christians, sometimes we can adopt this idea that we are under some sort of generational curse, that, that, that somehow, some way, there's this thing that stands over our family that we all have to deal with and nobody can get rid of. It's a, it's a generational curse. We, we're under a curse because my great-grandfather did it and my grandfather did it and my father did it, so, so it must mean that I am the same way. If it happened to my grandmother, it definitely, I saw it happen to my mom, then I can only suspect that it'll happen to me and that I'll also pass it along to my children. But I don't want us to confuse the two. If you are in Christ, if you bear the name of Jesus, I want to tell you this, that you do not live under any, co- any sort of generational curse. You, you don't live under any sort of generational curse. You are, you are not cursed. The Bible tells us that Jesus took on all of our curses. Jesus took on our curses on the cross. This is what we find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus has become a curse for us and redeemed us from the curse of the law. So if you are in Jesus, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. Just because it happened to your mother or your, your grandmother does not mean that it is something that you will have to deal with. It is not, does not mean that there is something that you will do because they did it. You've been freed from that. However, if you are free, like we are from generational curses, I do want to say this, that does not mean that we don't deal with patterns of sin that run from generation to generation. Yes, you may be free from generational curses, but however, we oftentimes deal with generational patterns of sin that run from one generation to the next, and oftentimes the sins of the father becomes a burden on the son and the daughters. And so what I mean is this, we carry what psychotherapist Richard Swartz call legacy burdens. We, we, call, we, we call them legacy burdens because maybe this is something that you've seen other people do and, and it was normalized, so you quite naturally do it because that's what you were taught and that's what you saw. There, there are patterns of behavior and ways of thinking that we oftentimes normalize and accept because it is all that we know, but these very patterns of behavior prevents us from growing and becoming all that God has called us to be. And so we're, we're recommending therapy And we're talking about counseling because we want to use that to help us grow and get out of the places that we've been stunted in our growth. And so here's what I want to say. The reason that we are talking about therapy today, I want to say this as a Christian, as a pastor, the reason that we are talking about therapy or counseling and encouraging people to go to therapy is not because we believe that therapy is an end in itself. We are not talking about the need for therapy so that people can say they went to therapy. No, we're not encouraging it so that people can say that I feel better. We're not talking about it so that you can be happy. We're not encouraging it so that people can be healed or whole for healing and wholeness sake. All of those things are good and right, but we as followers of Jesus do not treat therapy as an end all be all, but we do see therapy as a good gift from God that we use as a tool in and an aid to making us grow and be more like Jesus. So so therapy is not God. Therapy is not Jesus. Therapy is not Jesus. However, therapy is a gift from God that helps us to grow and become more like him. Furthermore, we know that we must deal with and uproot and address family trauma because as one priest said this, he said, if we do not transform our pain, we will most surely transmit it to somebody else. If we don't transform it, 
we will transmit it to somebody else. And here in this text, we find a perfect illustration of family sin and trauma having a direct impact on future generations. And so this chapter and story marks a transition from David's generation to the one that follows David. Maybe not everyone here grew up in church. Maybe you didn't go to Sunday school. Maybe you didn't grow up reading your Bible. And so I don't want to take for granted that you know who David is. David is the great king of Israel. He's seen as this heroic and godly leader. So much greatness is spoken about King David. David is this military warrior. When we find David, David is this young shepherd And David goes to battle, and his brother and all of the military is scared of this Goliath. And David goes and kills the Goliath. You you may have learned that or heard about that, whether you're in church or not. But David is this military leader, this great warrior. David is also a psalmist. We read through the Psalms. uh, We read through the book of the Psalms. and, and, And many of you read these Psalms that were written by David. And so David is this hero of the faith. David is this great leader. And when we get to 2 Samuel, we are on the hill of David's greatest success. He is at the pinnacle. He is at the height of his success. And here's what happens. David, at the height of his success, commits a heinous sin and crime that would set off a cycle of devastation, not only on himself, but on his family. And so David, what you may know what I'm talking about, David has a transgression with a lady that is already married by the name of Bathsheba. Bathsheba's married to a man who's a soldier in David's army by the name of Uriah. And so David, one day, the Bible tells us that it's when the time when the kings go to war, David is at home and he goes out on his roof and he sees a woman across the way bathing. And he likes what he sees and he sends somebody to get her. And subsequently, David sleeps with her. They have a child. And, and I got to be honest with you, every time I read the story of, of, of David and Bathsheba, I can't help but to hear a song that comes up. I always hear Usher's confession. And, and when I hear this, because David David's married, and, and I hear him talking about Bathsheba, and Bathsheba gets pregnant, and, 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 and I always just hear Usher saying, my chick on the side, got one on the way. These are my confessions. I'm thrown. I don't know what to do. I guess I got to keep part two of my confessions. And David, it's like, I, if I'm going to tell it, then I got to tell it all. Almost cried when I got that phone call. I, I'm so thrilled. I don't know what to do, but I think I'm going to keep part two of my confessions. This is what I think about when I think about David and, and Bathsheba. This is, what, this is a real-life confession. This, this really happens to David. And we learn about it in Psalm 51. He's repenting of this, of this transgression that he does with Bathsheba. But, but this is no light sin. This, this is no light sin. The, the sin was so deep in God's eyes that, that a blessed kingdom, a blessed kingdom would have a dark cloud over it for years to come. We can find this. We look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 12 says this. This is what happens. This is God's response to David's transgression. This is God's response. Here, here's what God says the prophet Uriah to tell David, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You, you murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, here's what he says, the sword will never leave your house because you despise me 
and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. And this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring a disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. Man, this is what God says, you acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. And so David has to deal with the consequences of his sin. And I know what you're saying. But wait a minute, Pastor. I thought I read that David repented of his sins when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. I I thought David repented of his sins and he received grace and he received mercy. He received grace and mercy as soon as he repented, just like you and I received. As soon as we repent uh, of, of our sins and we ask God for his forgiveness, he gives it to us right in that moment. However, it does not always remove the consequences and implications of our sin. So don't get that confused. Yes, you are forgiven, but you may have to deal with the consequences of your actions. And and, and so we we see this happening. And and so the unintended consequences of David's sin sets off a chain of events that would affect generations to come, starting immediately with David's own children. And a spirit of deception and murder will hover over David's family for generations to come. And so we get to this text, the story although we think it's about Tamar, begins with Absalom. Because for the next few chapters, Absalom, David's son, will wreak havoc on his father and his family because Absalom has some deep-seated issues and a disdain for his father. There's a root of bitterness in Amnon's heart towards his dad because he doesn't like how his dad handles certain situations. So he walks around mad at his parent because his parent isn't perfect. So Amnon says, if you won't do something about it, I'll do something about it. If you're not parenting the way that I think you should, then I'll do what you refuse to do. But I'll have a thing in my heart against you the whole time. But Absalom is not David's only child. David has a beautiful, gorgeous young daughter by the name of Tamar. And unfortunately, David's sin will have a profound effect on this young woman's life. David's oldest son is named Amnon. And the text tells us that Amnon is infatuated with his younger half-sister. See, this is his sister. They got different mamas but the same daddy. This is real. The Bible tells us that he's frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister because his sister's a virgin. She's a young girl. Scholars believe at this time Amnon is in his 20s, which will put Tamar somewhere in her teenage years. He's 20-something years old, and she's a teenage girl. She may be 13, 14 years old, but he's a grown man at this point. But it says that he's infatuated with his sister because she's a virgin but it was impossible for him to do anything to her. And the reason why is because he's her half-brother, and Levitical law prevented half-brother and half-sister from having sexual relationships with one another. So he can't sleep with his sister. And so Amnon is David's oldest son, but he has this uncontrollable, insatiable desire for something that he cannot have. 
Amnon is not some neglected child. Amnon is not some forgotten child. Amnon is not treated like a a red-headed stepchild. Amnon is not the black sheep of his family. Amnon is not forgotten. Amnon is actually the heir to the throne of Israel. If David dies, Amnon becomes king. Amnon is one heartbeat away from having everything he could ever want in life. And eventually he would if he just waited, but he's driven by what he cannot have. That this one thing he he cannot have, he would soon have access to so much, but he felt like there is no, there should be no restrictions on what I can have. I want it and I want it right now. It sounds like the garden to me. God says you can have, you can do whatever, you can have all of this except this one thing. And there's something in Amnon's heart that's, that's driven to this one thing that he cannot have. And he so, has so much a lack of self-control that he can't even wait. He's in dangerous territory. territory. And so Amnon is the heir. He, everybody knows Amnon. And Amnon is, is hot in the streets. Everybody knows Amnon. He's the, he's the king's son. His dad is David, the famous king. All he has to do is wait for his father to die, and everything belongs to him. So he has to pick up a liver of women if he wants to. And when I read this, I couldn't help but to be reminded that there is something to be said when we see celebrity and powerful men who seemingly can have whatever they want and whoever they want, somehow we find them committing sex crimes. And if you're like me, you wonder, you can have any woman you want. What drives you to the point of forcibly taking something from somebody in order to fulfill your uncontrolled desires? That there's something sick about that. We see men who have millions of dollars, access to everything, can buy whatever they want, go whatever they want, have whatever they want, but they want the one thing that they cannot have. And we have a picture of this right now. But up until this point, this is just a desire that's ruminating in Absalom, in uh, Amnon's heart. This is just something that's going on in his heart. I don't know if anybody even knows it yet. And then young man by the name of Jonadab comes on the scene. And Jonadab, it says that he's a friend of Amnon. And it says that David's, he's the son of David's brother, Shemiah. And Jonadab is described as a very shrewd man. Now, I want you to realize something. Think about this. It says that Jonadab is a, as a friend, a friend, a friend of Amnon. But it says it's David's brother's son. So he's not just a friend. This is David's nephew, which would make him also Amnon's first cousin. But he's not just Amnon's first cousin. He's also Absalom's first cousin. He's not only Absalom's first cousin, he's also Tamar's first cousin. So he's a family member, and he comes on the scene, and he, he's asking uh, Amnon, Hey, bro, what's wrong with you? Why, you, are the, you are David's son, bro. You're about to have everything. What's wrong with you? Why do you look so sad? What, what's, what's up? There's no reason you should be sad. Your father is the king. You go wherever you want to go. You drive whatever you want to drive. You wear whatever you want to wear. You live in your own house that is a mansion that's better than all of our houses. What is your problem? Why are you sick and sad? What's wrong with you? And he tells him, I'm in love with my brother Absalom's sister. Now, mind you, this is his sister, but he calls her Absalom's sister. And the Bible describes Jonadab as a very shrewd man. He's shrewd, which means he's, he's wise, he's, he's skillful, he, he's, he's, he's street smart. He's street smart. He uses his God-given wisdom for the detriment of other people. Those people, they, those are some dangerous type of people. 
that, that, are, that are naturally smart, but they don't use their, their intelligence to help people. They use it to instigate stuff. They, they use it to, to kind of be a, a puppet master, putting people against each other and, and, and telling one something here and telling another person there and, and, and watching it all unfold while they sit back and watch it like they're watching a chessboard. And this is it. This is Jonadab. He's, he's wise, but he's evil. And he says, what's wrong? And he tells him, I'm in love with Tamar. Now, this is his cousin. Think about this. At this point, what should Jonadab have done? He should have dug deeper. He should have been asking more questions. He, he, something should have went off. He should have said, man, are you all right? Are you okay? You just told me that you want to sleep with your little sister. Are you all right? Let's, bro, bro, let's talk to your father. Let's talk to David about this. Bro, we, we, I love you, but you out of pocket. Bro, bro I love you, but you, you out of line. I can't believe this is your sister. Man, what is wrong with you? This is my little cousin that you're talking about. Man, you know what? I'm not going to even judge you. Let's get some help. But no, instead, he proves to us why the Bible describes him as a shrewd man. Jonadab doesn't protect his cousin. He plots the whole thing to destroy her life. And if you ask me, there's a lot of characters in this story. But Jonadab is the most dangerous person in the whole ordeal. He's the most dangerous because he plots a plan against his own cousin. And in some ways, I believe that he's more guilty than Amnon because Amnon hadn't even acted out his wicked desires yet. All he needed was some fool to come along and tell him that everything was okay and he should do what he wanted to do. Be careful for people when you tell them something crazy and they encourage you in your nonsense. And I think I'm just steal it. Go ahead. Here's what you should do. I realize that they don't have cameras at the store. And also, at 6 o'clock, they kind of leave. So you can run in there right there and grab what you got to get and get out. Be careful of those type of people. All Amnon needed was someone to come along and convince him that it was okay. But the Bible tells us, Ephesians 5 and 1, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So Jonadab should have been telling somebody immediately, yo, something's wrong. Something's wrong with Amnon. He, he could have stopped Amnon. He could have told David. He could have told Absalom. Or better yet, he could have warned his little cousin to stay away from her brother. But he says nothing. And here's what Jonadab says. Here's the plan, bro. I'm gonna quarter, let me quarterback this thing for you. Lie down on your bed. Pretend to be sick. When your father comes to see you, tell your dad, tell him to let your sister Tamar come and give you something to eat. Ask, ask your dad, because we know that Tamar's a good cook, ask your dad to have her come and prepare a meal for you so you can watch and eat from your sister's hand. So now Amnon is equipped with a plan to violate his sister. And the Bible tells us, it tries to trick us in a bit, because it tells us that Amnon loved his sister. But this ain't true love. This is not love. This is actually self-centered lust. There is a difference. Just because somebody wants you doesn't mean that they love you. Sometimes it's not love, it's lust. 
All Amnon wants is sexual gratification. So he follows through with the plan. He pretends to be sick, and as suspected, David, his father, comes to see about his beloved son, and the spirit of deception is already at work. The plan works to perfection. He asks for his sister to come to take care of him and cook for him, and David sends for her, and she comes, and here comes Tamar, this beautiful young girl who's following the instructions of her father, who comes to see about her brother, She's beautiful, she's young, she's innocent, she's pure, she's gifted, she's industrious, she obviously has a servant's heart. She's a true woman of God with a whole life ahead of her. I wonder what Tamar's dreams were. I wonder what Tamar's plans were for her future. But all she knows is that she's there to serve and take care of somebody that she should be trusting. She's going to the house of a trusted family member. But she's lured in, and her life is about to be changed forever. And so he lures her into the bedroom, kicks everybody else out, and begins to fight. And this begins to fight for Tamar's life. And if you read the text, three times she tells him no and to stop. Three times she says, no, don't do this, my brother. You're my brother. How can you do this to me? No, don't do this. You'll disgrace me. Amnon, you're no stranger to the law. You know that this is illegal. You can't do this to me. Amnon, no, don't commit this outrage. You'll ruin my future and your future. No, please don't do this. Don't humiliate me and ruin my life. And she tries to appeal to his conscience. She tries to appeal to practical implications of what will happen for both of them. And and, and she says, I'll forever be disgraced by you. I I will never be able to to get married. And and Amnon, think about your own life and your own future. If you do this to me, you're going to ruin the fact that you are about to have the throne of Israel to yourself. What does it say about a man who has access to everything and he can't withhold himself because he has to have what he wants to have? She makes one last ditch effort to save her own life. She just makes up something. She says, Amnon, if you just ask the king for me, I'm sure he'll give you to me. And what she's saying is, ask him to marry me. He, he, I'm, sure, I'm sure our father will grant you your wish. She knows that that's not true. But what do you do when you're caught in a situation you can't get yourself out of? You'll try anything. So what we see here is desperation for somebody whose life is being turned upside down. And she can't get out of the situation. It tells us in verse 14 through 15, but he refused to listen to her because he was stronger than she was. He disgraced her by raping her. So Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love that he had for her. And he says, get out of here. 
This was never love, people. This, this was evil. This was wicked. This was sick. This was demonic lust that was acted out under the guise of love. She, she was never an object of his love. She was trash to him. She was a piece of meat to him. He wanted to throw her away and not deal with her. And so he tells her to get out. And the reason why he tells her to get out is because he doesn't want to deal with what he just did. He doesn't even want to have to deal with his own guilt and shame. So he tells her to get out, and he and she says, no, don't send me. Oh, if you kick me out, it's actually worse than the act that you just committed. If I walk out of here and everyone knows what happens to me, that's it for me. I'm no longer a virgin, which means that my future is over. Because part of my dreams as the king's daughter is to marry another noble man. But if you do this to me, then all of my hopes and dreams are over. I'm ruined forever. I'll be stuck. I'll be stuck. Everything that I thought was going to happen in my life is not going to happen. My reputation is going to be ruined. And it says, instead, he called the servant who waited on him. Look at verse 17. This is the coldest thing in there. Verse 17, he says, Get this away from me. As if she doesn't even have a name. She's just a faceless victim. Get this away from me. This is, he slept with me and he blocked me. He slept with me. And he stopped calling me. He slept with me. And now he's ashamed of me. He convinced me that he loved me. But all he did was lust me. He looked me in my eyes and told me that I was his only. But it was just lies. And now I'm just a woman who's naked, humiliated. My future is ruined. And here's another thing. I told you that oftentimes generational trauma passes through the ears and hands of other people. He calls one of his male servants to come get her out. And nothing in the male servant's heart said, this ain't right. I'm going to tell the king. The male servant is also complicit in this rape. So you got her brother. You got her cousin, and you got a male servant, all against one little teenage girl. When men are supposed to be protecting, they're victimizing. It says that she's wearing this long sleeve garment, and this is what King's daughters wore, and she tears her garment and went away crying. And one scholar says, Tamar walks onto the stage of history as a vibrant young woman and leaves it, leaves it as a demoralized, devastated wreck. Theologian Dale, Dale Ralph Davis says, Tara takes a second or two, but in 10 minutes, Tamar's whole life is in tatters. 
a young woman who knew one day she would be married of some, with, to somebody of noble caliber, is now resigned to live as a desolate woman in her brother Amnon's house. And so here's what you're, you're asking me. What does this have to do with generational trauma? What does this have to do with generational trauma? This is definitely like father, like son. Think about David. David committed immoral acts outside of marriage in the privacy of his own home. Amnon commits an immoral act outside of marriage in the privacy of his own home. As a result of his encounter with, with Bathsheba, uh, with David, Bathsheba experienced grief with the death of her husband. As a result of unwanted sexual encounter, encounter with Amnon, Tamar experienced grief at the death of her potential to be married. David's child that came as a result of his relationship with Bathsheba dies. Amnon's rape of Tamar brings about his own death. And all you see is a parallel there, like father, like son. The sins of one generation fashions the sins of another. All, the, all that David's sins did was provide a precedent for Amnon to follow. And the only person in the story that seemingly has a care for Tamar is Absalom. And Absalom comes to her and he asks her what happened. And she tells him. But Absalom comes to the rescue or is planning to come to the rescue of his sister But even Absalom's approach is wrong. Here's why. Amnon is the second oldest. So if something, Absalom is the second oldest, so if something happens to Amnon, guess who becomes the king of Israel? Absalom. So yeah, he loves his sister, and he wants to get revenge for his sister, but if he takes out Amnon, it puts him in prime position to be the king of Israel. So even if he comes to his res- her rescue, he has his own vested interest in seeing something happen to Amnon. He wanted to get rid of Amnon all alone. All he needed was a reason. But what he does is he gives us a clinic on how not to deal with somebody who's had trauma. Would you look at Absalom's response to Tamar's trauma? The first thing he tells her is to be quiet. Be quiet. Be silent. Don't say anything. The second thing he tells us, that's your brother. In other words, hey, we got to protect the family member. In other words, we got to protect the perpetrator. We, we can't say anything because we don't want something to happen to him. And then he tells her, don't take this thing to heart. Don't, don't, let, it, don't let it get to you. Don't, don't let it bother you. But let me say this to anyone that's dealt with trauma. There's no way that you can deal with trauma and it not affect you in some kind of way. There's no way that we could ever deal with trauma, not deal with it, and pretend that it doesn't affect us. Here's what one person wrote in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, a famous book on trauma. He says this, the author Bessel van der der Kolk says this, traumatic experiences do leave traces, whether on a large scale on our histories and cultures, or close to home, on our families, with dark secrets being imperceptibly passed down through generations. And so here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. There's no way that if we don't deal with our trauma, that it won't somehow affect our lives and those who are other, other people in our family. And so if we did not deal with our trauma, then our children will have to deal with our trauma. We will have to be, we are being naive if we're blinded to the fact that our trauma has effect on everybody that is around us. If you deal with trauma as a child, you eventually get married. Your spouse will have to deal with your trauma. Your children will deal with your trauma. And so what I'm trying to say is we have to deal with our trauma and stop pretending like it doesn't exist. 
The last person I want to deal with in this story is David. What about her father? Where's David at? It says that he's angry. But David is angry and does nothing. David does nothing. At least Amnon has a, uh, Absalom has a, a plot and a plan in his heart to do something. But David, her father, does nothing. David is the great king of Israel. He kills Goliath, but he won't do anything to his baby boy. He, he loves his son. So, so if that means that he has to protect his son and let his daughter be victimized, then it is what it is. He, he does nothing. How do you know he does nothing? Because two years later, if you keep reading, two years later, Amnon shows up at a party at Absalom's house. Amnon is still living with his father, David. There are no consequences and no accountability for his actions. How can you be that angry? Because if you're angry, it would actually lead to justice. And the father does nothing. Amnon should have been punished. And Tamar should have been exonerated. But Amnon is allowed to go on with his life. But Tamar receives no restitution. So... Why does David not do anything? What's the real reason David, this mighty warrior, the king of Israel, and I'm almost done. What's the real reason that David does nothing? Number one reason is Amnon is his oldest son. He can't discipline the son that he loves because it will make him complicit in his daughter's rape. Here's why. Because David, most importantly, David in his own mind knows that he can't say anything about what happened to Tamar because he did the same thing. How can I tell you what not to do when you saw me do what I did? What am I going to say? I set the precedence on how you would treat women. I, I can't, I, I'm undercut by my own transgression, so I can't say anything to Amnon. I'm, I'm implicated in this by my own sins. How, how can I say anything when, when I actually had a woman's husband killed because I couldn't control myself? So what am I going to say to my son? I taught him how to be this way. But here's what I want to say. Even if you as a parent have made mistakes, it still does not negate your responsibility to say something and parent your children. He still should have said something. He still should have been responsible. He still should have said something. He is the king, but most importantly, he is a father to children. He's a father to a daughter. He should have said something. And oftentimes we wonder why victims of crimes that are committed by family members are not believed or they're pushed aside. Oftentimes it has more to do with the person you tell than what happened to you. Why, why, won't, why didn't mom believe me? Why, why wasn't I believed? Because mom can't reveal to you that the same thing happened to her. And if she deals with your trauma, it means that she will have to deal with her own. So as opposed to dealing with my own, dealing with your pain and having to deal with my own pain, I'd rather push it to the side and tell you that it doesn't exist. It's amazing what we will do to avoid pain. But here's what David should have done. David should have done more to deal with this cycle. He should have been honest with his children about his own mistakes. Here's what parents should know. Your children are not stupid. Children are wiser than we think they are. Children may never say anything, but they always know what's going on. And 
And so it's wise for us to talk about our family issues. He should have talked to his son and told him that the wages of sin is death. I almost blew this whole thing. I almost messed up everything, the entire kingdom because of my transgressions. And sons, Absalom, Amnon, I don't want you to do the same thing. But yet he says nothing. Instead, Tamar has to deal with this. And so I imagine Tamar, as a young woman, growing older, maybe wanting to date somebody, maybe still having hopes of getting married one day. I'm wondering what, what that was like for her, that, that, that knowing that if she didn't deal with it, she was still burdened by what happened to her. I'm wondering what her dating life was like. I'm, I'm wondering what, what her dating life was like. And, and, and oftentimes we, we think about, man, why, 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 does a, why does a woman date a certain type of man? You ever ask yourself that question? Why does she keep falling for the same kind of guy? Better yet, why is she attracted to a man who is just like her father? Why is she attracted to a man who was like her abuser? And what I found out was oftentimes, we try to recreate childhood family dynamics. And so it's not that a woman is attracted to that type of man. What happens is she's still a little girl and she's trying to recreate the same situation and make a different outcome happen. And so you think she's attracted to this type of dude. You think she's attracted to a gangster. You think she's attracted to somebody that's aggressive. No, she's not necessarily attracted. She's still a little girl trying to play out this drama in her real life and create a different outcome than the one that she actually had. Not knowing that all she keeps doing is re-traumatizing herself over and over again. And so you may say that, yeah, 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 I, th- this happened to me when, when I was 11. It happened to me when, when I was 11. I'm 30 now. I don't, uh, that, was, I, that was a long time ago. I'm 30 years old now. When I was, when I, I was 11 when that happened, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adult now. I got, a, I got a college education. I got a job. I got my own family. I'm, I'm fine. What would happen to me at 11 doesn't matter. No, no, it does matter. If you did not deal with it, you may be the age 30, but truly you've only turned 11 19 more times. Because there's no way that if we don't deal with our burdened parts of us, if we don't deal with our story and the things that happen with us, we stay stuck right where the trauma happened. And so we have to allow the hurting parts of us to heal. The hurting parts of us have to have a place to go. And we have to do what Henry Nouwen says, bring home the parts of us that were left behind. So, the last thing I want to say. You may be asking Where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? I'll tell you where God is. God is holding true to his word. God told David that the sword would not leave your house. And this is what's happening. God is not absent. God is just staying true to his word. But I want to tell you this. God is sovereign in Tamar's suffering. If you've ever been touched, rape, violated, whether physically or verbally, God is with you. I want to tell you this. If you were not believed, if you were told to be silent, God is not absent. God is with you. 
anything ever happened to you outside of your control, God is not absent. God is with you. He has sent his son, his innocent son, who was also assaulted, violated, beaten, stripped naked, humiliated on a cross. He not only suffered abuse at the hands of wicked and evil men, but he died due to their violence. And God's son takes on the Tamar's sin. He took on her guilt, her shame, her humiliation. And one day Tamar will be raised to glory. And that robe that she tore, that white robe that she tore that represented her virginity will be replaced. And she will be freely given an unstainable robe of perfect righteousness. He will return one day and undo all the physical, sexual, emotional, mental, and spiritual trauma that Tamar had to endure and bring perfect healing and redeem the scars of her abuse. And I want to tell you this. If that is true for Tamar, it is true for you. There is no amount of abuse that you've had to endure that God won't undo. But in between the time of his return and now, know that God is with you. Here's what Jesus says. When he invites us into his therapy office in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to say this. The family... Trauma is not something that we can escape, but it is something that we can recover from. But we have to start the journey of healing. First with Jesus, inviting him into our secret spaces, letting him sit with us, believing the gospel, believing that he died for our sins. Believing that if you've ever felt dirty, that if you've ever felt used, humiliated, guilty, shame, if you've ever felt that, he sits with you in those emotions. That he takes on your guilt and your shame and he gives you his perfect righteousness. Maybe you were not believed by your family, but God believes you. Maybe you were silenced. But Jesus says, come to me. You can tell me. And his justice is perfect. We have to get out of the idea that silence is golden. Silence is not golden. Silence is detrimental. We got to get out of saying what goes on in this house stays in this house. That is traumatic. We say things like this, no, no, this, that's, just, that's just your brother, that, that's just your uncle, that's just your dad, that's just your granddad, that's just, that's just your cousin. When we say this, all we do is we, we re-traumatize the victim. What if we believed them the first time? What if we stand up for them? What if we sit with them? What if we don't make them feel guilty? What if we don't make them feel like it's their fault? This is what Jesus would do. 
will be with them. Family trauma does not just go away. It leaves a trail. And it leaves victims. But I declare in the name of Jesus that if we start to talk about and address our issues, that we can, we can begin the journey of wholeness and healing in Jesus' name. That you can get unstuck. That, that you can have a future. That, that all of your shame, and your, that you can walk, walk around with your head held high because you are a child of the king. That, that you, can, you can stop trying to redo scenarios. That you can have a new life because Jesus has given you a new life. That you can stop falling victim to the same stuff, trying to recreate childhood dynamics. That, that you can live a new life and walk in wholeness and in health if you would just let Jesus deal with your issues. And so right now at this moment, I just want to pray. You can buy your head and close your eyes. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.